He's amused Cam Newton. Just ask that question one more time. <laughs> He's been insulted by Charles Barkley. When some idiot in the press asked him, if you know what you know now, what you have scheduled this game. He's interviewed Matthew McConaughey. I do say go Tarion. And he's taken on Big Blue Nation. As he, he's just completely taken the wind out of my sails. <laughs> it's time for the drive with Josh Grant. We've made it to a Friday drive. We're a day after Wake Forest alum Cam Young shot a 64. It was Ozzie Cam Smith's turn to follow suit. And his 13 under par is the lowest 36-hole score in the history of the Open Championship at St. Andrews. Not bad. But I actually want to save the golf for a little bit later because right now I want to talk about Tar Heel basketball and really sportsmanship. There are few things I hate more than a bad sport. Maybe traffic. Maybe the New York Yankees. But anyway... We all know the guy who's always blaming others or making excuses when things don't go his way. That dude always seems to be on my pickup basketball teams, it always felt like when I was in school. But losing is an inevitable part of sports. It's an inevitable part of life, but we're talking here on a sports show, and sometimes there's nobody to blame, and you've just got to tip your hat to the competition. Last night's news regarding 2023 number one prospect Gigi Jackson is one of those times. He's the first modern-day Tar Heel recruit to decommit and join another school, and it looks like that school is going to be South Carolina. And credit to the Gamecocks. They saw an opportunity to steal next year's top player, and they capitalized by getting him to reclassify for this year, based on reports. Hubert Davis is not really to blame here. I'd rather you blame the adults if you're going to blame somebody than blame the kid. Just pointing that out on social media led to people getting really furiously mad at me. Will Dalton is just despondent today because he's a Tar Heel fan. The executive producer of this show taking your calls at 336-777-1600 or you can reach out to the show at WSJS Radio. Hubert Davis did all the right things here. Back in March, when they were meeting with Gigi trying to get him to commit to Carolina, they didn't expect to get all the starters back at that point. So they broached the topic of reclassification. Hey, do you want to play sooner? The answer back was no, based on what I've been told by multiple people, by the way, that I trust. When Kerwin Walton entered the portal, they had the commitment from Gigi at this point. They asked him the question, do you want to reclassify for next year? He said no. He said no both times. So North Carolina turned the page and trying to replace Brady Manick by pursuing players like Matthew Meyer and Pete Nance, who they signed in the last month. Ideally, Hubert would have loved to have an extra scholarship. A lot of coaches do like having an extra scholarship floating around. Wake Forest has that right now. Duke has that right now. And Hubert Davis did a year ago, which allowed them to bring in a guy like Dawson Garcia at this point in the summer. You'd like to have that type of flexibility, but with Armando Baycott coming back, Armando and Caleb Love and Leaky Black and RJ, which you could not have forecasted just a few months ago. That wasn't an option for Carolina. Hubert did the right things, but in doing the right things, he was left exposed for South Carolina to strike and they handled it perfectly. The South Carolina staff did. Once North Carolina had exhausted all of their scholarships, 
with the Nance signing, signing, that's when the Gamecocks made their move. Rightfully so. Why would you talk about reclassification before the Tar Heels have, you know, that final spot filled? That wouldn't have made a lot of sense. South Carolina had some things to offer that North Carolina didn't. He lives in Columbia. Gigi does. That's where South Carolina's at. I'm sure there's some NIL SEC money angle to this that isn't made clear to us on the surface. And then once North Carolina filled its final scholarship spot for this year, hey, do you want to get to the NBA sooner? Yeah? Okay. Well, you can't do that there. You can do that here. Tip your cap. Recruiting is competitive. It can get personal at points. Fans, they really start to get into it. It has been funny watching Tar Heel fans say, we're not really mad about this. Oh, we're not mad about it at all. Hubby just keep tweeting about how not mad I am about this. Don't say we're mad. We're not mad. No, we're not upset about it. It's okay to be upset about losing the potential number one player in your recruiting class a year from now. In hindsight, I still believe Carolina preferred that GG stay in 2023. Now, that's not based on any info. That's just my guess. They were all set. They were already set for this year to be a contender. You know, you want to make sure you're set for next year and you had another five-star in that class already. You want to make sure you're set up for the long-term. Carolina doesn't really strike me as a school that loves reclassification that much. You don't see it a lot with Carolina. Hubert Davis and Roy Williams have this in common. They still talk a lot about the educational piece of things and w- trying to imagine what Dean Smith would have done. I can't imagine Dean Smith would have loved reclassifications much. So this is not me blaming Hubert Davis. You just got to tip your hat and give credit to where it's due, and that credit's due to South Carolina. 336-777-1600, the number if you want in. I had a feeling I'd be hearing from Super Tar Heel fan Ed in Winston-Salem, who calls in now. Ed, where do you stand on Gigi Jackson, the number one player in next year's class, deciding to join this class based on reports and not do so with Carolina, or at least not with the North Carolina that's not with the Carolina that's closer to us? Um, I'm, naturally, I'm disappointed, but it's all about a business, uh, uh, you know, situation, and you can't uh, blame him. I have no hard feelings. I wish him uh, well. And once I saw uh, this week when uh, Hubert put out an offer to T.J. Power, a six-nine forward out of Mass, a top sixty player, Zayden High, a six-nine or ten. Uh, power forward, top 40 player out of Texas. I knew in all likelihood he was going to declassify. The only thing that I might have a little bit of hard feelings against Gigi and his family is it kind of puts Hubert in a bind now because you got the national signing date for the 23 class, you know, coming up in November. But even if they don't get one of these guys or another uh, top quality player, They've always got to the uh, portal, and like Roy and Dean have always said, we'll win with you or win without uh, you. And I uh, wish the young man well. And and like I say, you you have to sometimes make this time of decision, even though it's not going to please everybody. Yeah, that's well said. Thanks for the call, Ed. Basketball coming, a 12-month sport. Coaches, man, they can't rest anymore. They're certainly earning those lofty paychecks that they receive. Shifting things to golf. We got Chip... 
Patterson, who's going to join us from CBS Sports in about 20 minutes. Here's the question everybody in the golf world is asking right now. Did we just watch Tiger Woods play St. Andrews for the final time earlier today? That's what it felt like. But I really, really hope that's not the case. Because this would be such a somber way for him to go out. Really would be. He is on the medal stand. I don't care what your view on Tiger is. If you have a brain, if you're a reasonable person, Tiger Woods is on the medal stand of the greatest to ever play. I, I think he is the greatest, but I'm not certainly going to get upset if you say Jack Nicholas, the Golden Bear, is better. But I can't imagine a guy you could argue is the greatest going out shooting nine over on his favorite golf course, missing the cut, and missing a birdie putt on 18 to close things out. Jack was 65 in 2005 the last time he played. St. Andrews, but he buried a birdie putt on 18. Tiger should be hitting that putt, and he should be doing so on Sunday, wearing that red, holding his head high on the way out, not the way that he looked today. And it was hard to watch how conflicted he was on the course. It was hard to watch him on 18 during that walk because you could see how conflicted he was. He didn't linger on the bridge. He raised his cap. He got emotional. You don't really see Tiger getting that emotional on the course either. But this was Tiger on the emotion he felt and the doubt he felt after his round uh, rounded out. Anytime you get the chance to come back and play the old course um, in the open, it's just it's just special. It really is. And as I uh, said to Tim, I've been lucky enough to have been doing this since 1995. And uh, I, I don't know if I'll be physically able to, to play another British Open here at St. Andrews. I feel, certainly feel like I'll be able to play more British Opens, but I uh, don't know if I'll be able to around, you know, uh, when it comes back around here. So um, the warmth and the ovation on, at 18, it, it, it got to me. I'd really hope, and it did. It really did get to him. I hope that he's going to be able to give it another shot. The Open, the earliest it would be back is 2026. They haven't announced a site for that year. Usually it's a five-year gap uh, between St. Andrews Open Championships. They were supposed to have it in 20, but COVID happened. They pushed it here to 2022. So the earliest it could be back is 26. Likely it's going to be 2027. So Tiger will be either 50 or 51 years old. And I hope we get to see him one more time. It's his favorite course. It's the home of golf. He's had so much history at this course and in this tournament. So it'll be sad for me if today was, in fact, Tiger's last open at the old course. But we'll talk more golf when Chip Patterson joins us a little bit later. Now comes the moment that you have all been waiting for. All right, whenever you're ready. This is The Drive with Josh Graham. Very strong leaderboard we have at the 150th Open Championship. Cam Smith with the record 13 under par after 36 holes. That's the lowest score that's been shot at an Open Championship at St. Andrews ever through 36 holes. Cam Young, Wake Forest alum, 11 under, followed by Rory McIlroy, who just wrapped up a 68. He's at 10 under par. And then when you go a little bit further down, you see Dustin Johnson, Victor Hovland, Ty Hatton, Scotty Scheffler. And those six players 
or I should say, since a couple are tied for six, those seven players are all in the top 30 of the world golf ranking, with the exception being Cam Young. Cam Young's ranked 32nd. So it's a very strong leaderboard. Here to talk about the Open Championship with us is Chip Patterson of CBS Sports. Maybe we'll get into some college football as well, because it is talking season for the Big 12, and next week the ACC. Chip, you Rory McIlroy was the overwhelming favorite going into yesterday, and he is third place right now and a few shots back of the lead. Is he is he still the guy you'd say is uh, it's his tournament to lose, or do you like one of the Cam's chances to hold him off? I, I do not think that it's his to lose. I think that it's way too strong of a leaderboard, as you just mentioned, and like you could even just take it back to – um, Patrick Cantlay is down there at seven. Matt Fitzpatrick, the recent major winner, is there at six. And Cam Smith has the potential to go out there and shoot a 75. I don't think Cam Smith has a 78 in him, but I do think that there's a potential that we could see him fall back. And then all of a sudden, pretty much anybody in my eyes who's at you know six or seven under par, so we've seen the ability. You're not going to necessarily go out there and have that kind of 64, 63 kind of round, but you can go out and shoot 66. Anyone up in that top 15, I think, can can go ahead and improve their score enough to be able to make a jump on Saturday. So, uh, Rory McIlroy, I haven't pulled up the Caesar Sportsbook recently to check it. Uh, I will be doing that this weekend as part of our coverage on CBSSports.com, you know, updating the odds and things of that nature. But I would imagine that Rory McIlroy, given where he sat heading into the championship, given the way that he's performed with the 66 and a 68 through two rounds, I, I got to think that he's still going to be the betting favorite, but overwhelming favorite. No, his to lose. No, there are way too many proven winners. There's way too much talent at the top of this leaderboard to imagine that any one of them, Rory or otherwise uh, is, is theirs to lose. You got you. How about this? Uh, Josh, you still got to go out there and get it. It's not a matter of defending the lead. You still got to be aggressive. Did Tiger Woods just play his final round at St. Andrews? So we might be back in 2030. Tiger at that point. Um, I'm going to say no. I think that he probably, considering how long we've seen some competitors stay on uh, playing in the Open Championship, I'm I'm going to say with hope in my voice that that walk across the bridge was not his last in the Open Championship at St. Andrews. But, uh, I mean, massively disappointing to to have that cut short because given the course, history at the course, um, the way that the Open Championship sets up, I thought that he was going to be not a factor to win, but at least uh, a good piece of the weekend story and the weekend narrative. And it was just so clear, uh, even from like the first five, six holes on Thursday, that he, he just didn't have the goods. And, and that's, that's massively disappointing. But they have not confirmed that the Open Championship will be back in St. Andrews uh, in, what was it, 2030, right? Yeah. What they're thinking. But I, I'm going to hope that Tiger Woods would be able to make an appearance if so. Chip Patterson's on Twitter at Chip underscore. Patterson, if you want to follow him on Twitter and follow his Open Championship coverage this weekend, that goes without saying, cbssports.com. We know he's going to be all in, cover three podcasts and talking college football, uh, especially given everything that's going on this summer and talking season, things coming up, Big 12 and the next week, the ACC media day. But getting to the ACC, 
and a team that's not too far down the way. We'll get to the Atlantic in a second, but North Carolina, after being the overwhelming favorite to win the Coastal a year ago, largely being overlooked. They're an afterthought in the Coastal Division, and when I look at this team, I still see three consecutive top 15 recruiting classes, and you bring in Gene Chiswick, which worked pretty well in 2015 when they won la- uh, when they when they last won the Coastal. What do you think the strength of this team is going to be? Phil Longo's offense without Sam Howell or a defense with all these blue chippers that's breaking Gene Chiswick back in? All right, so I think that the I think that the quarterback play, you know, whether you're going with Criswell, whether you're going with Drake May. I'm expecting that as long as you've got Josh Downs healthy on the outside and several other capable skill players, the offense itself is still going to have a chance to be productive, but the offense alone will not be good enough to win games. Uh, to win consistently, North Carolina does need uh, those top 15 recruiting classes, especially on the defensive side of the ball, to step up. And I know that there have been you know, many, obviously like Tony Grimes is going to be at the high end of that, but there have been a lot of players that have, that have had to play very young but it is going to be on them to go out there and sort of impose their will and live up to that blue chip ranking. Um, my colleague at the Cover 3 podcast, Bud Elliott, does the blue chip ratio. The premise of the exercise is that to win a national championship, you need to have more four stars and five stars than two stars and three stars and two stars signed over a four-year period. If you are over 50% blue chips based on your last four recruiting classes, then you have the minimum necessary talent to win a national championship. Doesn't mean that you'll make the college football playoff. Doesn't mean that you will win a national championship. In fact, there's 15 different teams who qualify for that, and one of them is Auburn. And Josh, Auburn ain't winning the national championship. <laughs> I can tell you that right now. Yeah. But he said that one of the teams that's just outside the 50% threshold right now is North Carolina, and that with one more really solid recruiting class, that North Carolina would be in that threshold, to which I think that, North Carolina is not an afterthought. I just think that uh, a lot of the experts and a lot of the people who are trying to drive conversation really felt like they got burned by a top 10 North Carolina team that never got it together last year. Because when it comes time for me to fill out my predicted order of finish at the ACC football kickoff, there's no question in my mind that North Carolina's top three in the Coastal Division. But top three in the Coastal Division isn't all that sexy. It means you're about middle of the road in the Coastal and you're about middle of the road in the ACC. You're probably going to be looking at a season that's going to be seven and five, eight and four in the regular season, somewhere between seven or eight wins. And so it is not a total afterthought. I believe that with the talent there and with the success that Mac Brown has had, even if it fell short of expectations, there's a very high floor. But I think that with all the turnover, with the failure to meet expectations last year, I think there's also a little bit of a low ceiling for the Tar Heels, at least in terms of expectations. Kit Patterson, on the way out, speaking of predicted order of finish, shifting things to the Atlantic, where are you leaning between Clemson, State, Wake Forest, and we're seeing more and more dark horse picks of Florida State? Oh, yeah. I'm not going to get – Florida State doesn't have the roster yet. If you're going to go dark horse in the Atlantic, not to win, but maybe if I was to power rank – like I, right now, I would say Clemson one, NC State two, Wake Forest three, and actually Louisville. I would put there at four. Mm. Just a big fan of Malik Cunningham, and they did some good work through the transfer portal to be able to bring in players who can help them shore up a defense that was really, really bad last year. I think Satterfield's group takes a step forward, and you've got uh, a really solid group of four. And then over there in the Coastal Division, 
I'm going to be Miami one. And, like, you could make an argument maybe North Carolina over Pitt for two, but it's Miami, Pitt, North Carolina is your top tier. And then we just get into the massive shakeup and transition and sort of time, it will take time before Tony Elliott at Virginia, Brent Pry at Virginia Tech, Mike Elko at Duke, before you really are going to be having any expectations for the bottom of that division. And then, you know, Jeff Collins, I, I don't know, man. We, we might be talking about a coaching change in Atlanta, too. So it's, it's interesting, right, because NC State, I think, is going to be number two in the Atlantic. I think North Carolina is going to be number three in the Coastal. But the, the big story, I think, for the conference as a whole, is going to be whether or not Clemson can retain its spot. They won six straight ACC championships, did not make the ACC title game um, last season. So are they going to be able to get more? DJU will be in the house. He will be there to speak for himself on his footwork, on what he's done for conditioning, on what he's done to try to improve himself and what the program has done after the loss of Tony Elliott and Brent Venables. So a lot of exciting things definitely within the state of North Carolina, but the, from the national perspective, whether or not Clemson, a team that I believe will be top five, top six going into the year nationally, whether they're going to be able to reassert their place at the top of the ACC is definitely one of the big questions. We plan to talk to number five from Clemson next week, just not the guy you referenced, DJ Uli Ungadale, but instead Winston-Salem native K.J. Henry, that alongside Brian Brzee, uh, might be among the next Clemson Tigers to be draft picks in the NFL. Chip Patterson, it's good to have you on. Enjoy the rest of the Open Championship. We'll enjoy reading your coverage. Sounds good. Y'all be well. You got it. He's on Twitter, at Chip underscore Patterson. Got anything crazy going on this weekend, Will Dalton? No, nothing too, too crazy. I'm I'm probably going to be hanging out, maybe chilling at the house tomorrow. Told you I'm going to some yard sales in the morning, probably. While listening to While the yard sale. With none other than J.J. J. J. Jeffrey. Jeffrey. Yeah. J.J.J., Triple J, uh -huh. that is. Ladies' man. <laughs> or that guy. No, well, I don't know if he's a ladies' man. It's just the ladies like J.J. They like do. You, you listen to J.J. show, you know. Something else. That's it, man. Brings it. He brings it. What me and Jeffrey do not mm. to the station. That's it. Yesterday, we, um, we pretty much got the complete Duke non-conference basketball schedule. And today, it was North Carolina's turn to share. And boy, do I see a lot of similarities. I'll share what those are. Next on The Drive. Three. You're on the air. Wake up with Jeffrey Griffin and Triad today. Weekday mornings at 7. Now back to The Drive with Josh Graham. At the risk of annoying more Carolina fans, I want to point this out. 15 years ago, maybe even less than that, let's say a dozen years ago, it was a popular thing I've noticed as a completely unaffiliated party. A guy who went to East Carolina University does not have a dog in the Duke Carolina fight whatsoever. I noticed something that Carolina fans would hold over Duke fans' heads. All the good players in the NBA went to Carolina and Duke doesn't have a lot of guys in the league coming out of their school. 
true. This is true. Who's the best guy from Duke going to the NBA? Oh, you think JJ Reddick's going to be it? Carlos Boozer, is that the answer? By the way, Carlos Boozer, it was announced, going to be a part of the 2022 Hall of Fame class that Duke Athletics introduces this year. That was just announced in the last hour. Meanwhile, North Carolina, oh, all the best players got Vince and Jameson, and you, you can just rattle off all these Tar Heels. That was the air quote narrative, a word that I can't stand. Flip it 12 years later. Uh, pretty much every team has all these great Blue Devils on it. Like, oh, well, you got Jason Tatum and you've got Zion Williamson and all these one and nuns that went to Duke. And then when you look at Carolina, it's like, yeah, the Heels won a championship last year. Justin Jackson, I don't think, logged a minute in the finals, but he got a ring and, and we got Danny Green. And okay, it's not, it's not terrible, but it seems that that thing is kind of flipped. And another thing that's always happened, at least in the latter stretch of Coach K's career, the scheduling aspect. Carolina fans would light up Duke saying, you're scared to schedule true road games, Coach K. Going to play all your games at home unless the ACC Big Ten Challenge makes you play on the road. Oh, you're going to hide at MSG or hide in one of these massive neutral site venues. How about you play a true road game, Coach K? And then when Duke's schedule came out yesterday, I heard some of those same jokes made because Duke's schedule does not have any true road games in it in the non-conference. Then Carolina's schedule came out today, and it's very similar. <laughs> Aside from the ACC Big Ten Challenge game in Bloomington, Carolina didn't schedule any true road games. And the only one they had last year, in Hubert's first year, was the College of Charleston, which was a prior contract agreement by Roy Williams. It wasn't a Hubert Davis deal, was my understanding. So is it quite possible that Hubert Davis is adopting a similar approach that Duke did to its non-conference scheduling? To be fair, I, I defended the way Duke put together its schedules. I thought it was smart. When you're one of those top programs that's only going to be defined by how you do in March, how do you simulate what it's like to play in NBA venues unless you play in the NBA venues? That's what Duke's thinking was. And it's smart for Carolina to do the same, especially this Carolina team that was so close to winning a national championship. This is the way they should put together a schedule. But can we now put that to bed? Can we say RIP to the dumb put down of, you don't want to schedule any true road games? With 20-game ACC schedules, why would anybody outwardly want to play true road games at this point? Why? And then you have a handful of marquee neutral site matchups. Even the same tournament that Duke's participating in, the Phil Knight Invitational, the Jumpman Classic, the first ever Jumpman Classic in Charlotte that they're putting on, which should be pretty cool. The CBS Sports Classic, still trying to figure out who their opponent is going to be. I'd really do like the regional opponents that North Carolina has scheduled. All the games could be at the Smith Center, UNCW, that's cool, Citadel, College of Charleston, Gardner-Webb, JMU, you know, all of them are in-state schools or from states that are bordering North Carolina. I love the Johnson C. Smith exhibition, which Hubert says they're going to do every other year. If you don't know the connection there, both of Hubert's parents, Johnson C. Smith alumni. So Hubert Davis, he might be taking a page out of the Coach K playbook. On Twitter, 
at WSJS Radio, 336-777-1600, the number, if you'd like to chime in, or you could just email me. If you want to do something a bit long form, the drive at WSJS.com. I guess you can do short form that way as well if you're not on Twitter. What t-shirt am I wearing right now, WD? Oh, no. I'm getting married with your... It's not getting. I'm married. I'm, oh, oh no. I'm married with your uh, meme face plastered mm-hmm. right on the That's front. Right. Orioles. <laughs> Going for 11 straight tonight. Tampa tonight, right? Tampa. Yeah. Three-game series. Then you got the all-star break. Here's what I want. This is all I'm asking for. I don't think I'm asking for too much. Just give me three more days. That's it. You can lose every game the rest of the way. Give me these three days. That's all I want. Like football. See, football essentially starts for me next week with ACC kickoff. Right? So I just want to be happy for the next few days. I want to be happy in this pre-football world for the next three days going into the All-Star break. Take two out of three. You don't even have to win all three. Take two out of three. If you sweep them, awesome. If we're talking about a 13-game winning streak, how cool would that be? The Orioles are a game and a half out of the wild card. They're a game over 500. they They're three back. I mean, you're talking about three games of Tampa here, who's a really good team. If the Orioles have a winning record at the All-Star break, and are tied for the wild card, then I don't care what happens in the second half. I just don't. Like, I am happy that's going to make my season. That's enough for me to get super psyched for next year. But it's not just about the games over the next three days I'm interested in. Tomorrow night is the Major League Baseball draft, and the Orioles have the number one pick. Now, I don't fully get the baseball draft, where maybe you could... Explain it a little bit to me. Sometimes you don't want to take the best guy because he's worth a lot more, unless it's like overwhelming easy who the number one guy is, like a Bryce Harper type, because you might want to use some of the money elsewhere in the second round or the third round, and it's about value more than something else. But the number one player, almost unanimously across the board, is Andrew Jones's son. Remember Andrew Jones oh, yeah. with the Braves? Yeah. His son. If Very that, good. If that doesn't make you feel old, just know that Carl Crawford and Matt Holliday's sons are also in this year's draft. Holliday's son is supposed to be the second best guy in this draft. If the Orioles pick up one of those two, I'm going to be happy. But really, whatever Elias, the GM, does, I'm going to be happy with because he's earned my trust. He's earned my buy-in. Kind of like where the Carolina Hurricanes are at. Canes, you know, every summer they do something that upsets fans like myself. But I've gotten to the point where I'm not upset anymore because hey, I trust Rob Brindamore. I trust Tom Waddell. I trust Tom Dundon because they get it right every single time. That's really immature of you, Will, that you didn't. So they have the number one pick in tomorrow's draft, the Orioles do. That's exciting. And I suspect, regardless of what happens the next three days, they're going to come back to planet Earth starting after the All-Star break because their first two series are against the Yankees and the Rays. And somebody actually brought this up to me earlier today. I think it's a really good topic. I was asked, hey, Josh, do you think that the AL East top to bottom is the best division in all of sports? Really, it would be a conversation between them 
in the AFC West yeah. in the NFL. Talking about Raiders, Broncos, Chiefs. Who am I forgetting? Chargers. That division in the NFL or the ALEs. I think it's the ALEs. All five teams have a winning record. The Orioles have won 11 straight, have a winning record, or 10 straight, excuse me. Don't get ahead of ourselves. They've won 10 straight. They have a winning record, and they're in last place in the division. I mean, it's like I told you. You're playing with house money right now, Josh, and it's going well. I, that's the part that bums me out, though. As <laughs> you, you've won how many straight? You have a winning record, and you're still in last place in the division? That's incredible. It really, it really is incredible that given this Herculean historic run that the Orioles have been on, and it still has not amounted to the Orioles being a playoff team, which is a little bit difficult to wrestle with. Here's a here's a stat from uh, Jeff Passan of ESPN, who was just in Winston a couple weeks ago winning the Sports Writer of the Year Award the NSMA gives out. The Orioles are over 500 as one of the, the uh, and are the other, as are the other four teams in the AL East. The last time all five teams in a division were above 500 this late into the season, almost a decade to the day, July 15th of 2012, when the AL East was a combined 236 and 207. For those who are doing math at home, that is 29 games above 500. This year, the combined record is 249 and 194. What? This division is 50. Want to get my math right here? Wasn't a math major. 55 games over 500. Historically good, and I think it is the best division in all of sports. Your attention, please. This is The Drive with Josh Graham. Getting rave reviews about today's show. Scott tweets in, My God, you're a special kind of idiot. Absolutely embarrassing that you think you should be talking about anything sports related. It's great to hear from my fans. Carolina fans, not happy that Gigi Jackson's no longer a Tar Heel 2023 player from next year, number one player in the 2023 class, reclassifying based on some reports I'm seeing, going to join South Carolina and play this next basketball season. If anybody knows what the heck's going on with Carolina, it's Greg Barnes of Inside Carolina who joins the show now. Greg's known to ruffle some feathers from time to time. That's what happens when you try to tell the truth. Why do you think G.G. Jackson, we know this, and I know this based on people that were in the room with him and also with conversations with the kid himself, that reclassification was on the table with North Carolina before North Carolina knew who was coming back, and even after that when Kerwin Walton decided to enter the portal. So why do you think G.G. Jackson decided now that he wanted to reclassify? 
Well, it's a great question. And I really think if you look at the way Gigi played this summer, um, it really confirmed some of those in his camp's opinion that he was ready to take the jump to the NBA. Um, and even though he was you know, a top five player prior to uh, this summer, he really didn't have the brand of a, of a you know, top five guy, if you will. But he really exploded this summer, and that really solidified some people around him believing that, hey, even though it's a risky proposition to reclassify, I mean, we saw it this year with Imani Bates at, at Memphis, uh, but they, they decided late in the process that we're ready to take this step, uh, and because of how things set up with, uh, with Mr. Nance joining North Carolina, Carolina did not have that extra scholarship available. South Carolina had been in play all along, uh, and with Gigi's birthday falling in December, that opened the door for him to be able to jump to the NBA next summer, and so here we are. There's one thing that I would love Hubert Davis's opinion on, and that's just the concept of reclassification because Hubert is still one of those coaches that talks so much about the importance of the academic side of things, and he's also cut from the Roy Williams cloth of often pondering what Dean Smith or Bill Guthridge might have thought on given subjects. Uh, and also another thing, you know, last summer we saw North Carolina had an extra scholarship available in the middle of the summer for Dawson Garcia and a lot of programs probably like having that extra scholarship available just in case something like this happens, starting with the reclassification front. Do you have a good sense of what Hubert Davis's view of reclassification is? Because we don't see a heck of a lot of it from North Carolina. We don't have a good view of it. What we do know is that reclassification with GG was on the table uh, long before the summer months occurred and some of the speculation started. Uh, North Carolina was really in position. A lot of people thought that they would get his commitment, you know, seven, eight months ago. Um, and, you know, of course, it was delayed until April, which, which caused some people to kind of wonder what was going on. But a lot of this was going on behind the scenes of how quickly can he get to the NBA uh, to your point, Hubert told us from day one that he wants guys to come in and unpack their backs. He doesn't want them to consider North Carolina to be a pit stop. However, when you're talking about a guy who's arguably the best player in the class um, and a guy that can elevate your team automatically from, from average to really good, you're going to have a little bit of leeway with that type of player. Uh, so Yes, we will have to wait and see exactly what Hubert says. But clearly there was some, some give and take with a player of Gigi's quality. Rick Barnes with us here from Inside Carolina. I don't think anybody, Hubert included, expected they'd get all the starters back that they did. So I'm not saying this is an option and I'm playing Captain Hindsight here. But ideally, given what we saw with Dawson Garcia last summer, do you think generally it's Hubert Davis's preference under normal circumstances to have a free scholarship available in the summer? You know, with the way the transfer portal has set up, um, you know, we, we see it on the football side for sure now, right, where pretty much every single Power 5 team is going to have available scholarships going into training camp. And that's because it's so difficult to figure out your roster. Now, with basketball, because you only have 13 scholarships, that changes the equation. Um, you know, Coach K at Duke is a good example. He plays a very limited rotation. So if there was anybody who could handle not having a full allotment of scholarship players, it would be Coach K. 
Roy Williams, on the other hand, tends to play more players uh, and like to have a full roster. And again, that's going to be something that we're going to have to wait and see. Clearly, in this situation, North Carolina would have loved to have available space for Gigi Jackson. Can you imagine him oh. with his current roster? Um, but it just didn't happen. So that's, that's the numbers game that they have to play. They, they did not think this was going to play out the way it did, and they kind of got caught in a, in a sticky situation. This might be another reason why I get some of these angry tweets and calls from time to time, but a concern, one thing I tend to value, and I don't care what sport we're talking about, is the is valuing large sample sizes. I tend to value the large sample size over the small sample size. And a concern I have with the amount of hype that's now surrounding this Carolina basketball team going into next season, they're probably going to be the preseason number one team, is over the long span of the season, nobody confused this team with being a national contender or a team maybe that could make the NCAA tournament for a lot of the season. Now, they showed flashes, but if they didn't beat Duke the final game of the regular season, given the way the NCAA, you know, treated or that committee treated a lot of ACC teams, odds are North Carolina doesn't get into the tournament. They got hot. They won five in a row to get to the championship game, and they were a half away from winning it all. We know the entire deal, but what should we put more weight in what you were right at the end and got hot and won five consecutive games or over the rest of the season? How concerned are you about the amount of hype that's being tagged to this team that many Carolina fans wanted nothing to do with many of these players in February of this year? Well, I agree with everything you just said there, Josh. Let me add this. Uh, people don't like the UCLA comparison, and I think it's because there's a lot of truth there. Uh, UCLA had a magical run last year. They were an 11 seed, got all the way to the Final Four. Beautiful story. Everybody came back. UCLA, all season long, pretty much, was a top-10 team. They were really good. That was a good basketball team, kind of what we expected. At the end of the year, however, they did not win the Pac-12 regular season championship. They did not win the Pac-12 tournament championship, and they lost in the Sweet 16. Would North Carolina fans be happy with that type of performance, even though UCLA was a really good team and it took North Carolina playing a well of a game Caleb Love was incredible in the second half of that Sweet 16 game. Uh, that's kind of what we're think, talking about, right? Mm -hmm. Because uh, you know, we're, North Carolina is not guaranteed to be the best team in the country. That's not how it works. Uh, but they will be really good. But can they live up to the expectation of title team or bust? I think that's too rich. I mean, look at the 2018. That team was fantastic, but there was so much pressure on Roy Williams that year as well as in 2009. Uh, it was basically win or go home. And Roy was under more stress in 2009 than I ever saw him in all my time covering. And fortunately for him, they won the title. But I would, I would argue that was probably not his most fun year until they actually won the title. When you say that's the most stress you saw Roy under, what's the image that's in your head that, that resonates or that immediately comes to you of the peak most stress you think he felt that year well i guess they started that acc season uh, i think they started zero and three maybe mm -hmm. maybe zero and two but after that i think a lot of people started really criticizing what was happening with the team even though it was early january uh and roy was just snippy and that that's really the lasting memory is just how how snippy he was you know he typically he has those moments for sure but he would always kind of be jovial and joke around and have a good time with reporters 
that year we did not see much of that at all from January on. Greg Barnes with us from Inside Carolina. Now let's flip the entire end of the spectrum and talk about a team that might actually be pretty good, but there's no expectation attached to them at all. And I'm talking about North Carolina football. Next week we got ACC kickoff. And a lot of the feeling is a year ago they got burned. And I remember you and I were having the conversation. Everybody's going to pick Carolina to win the Coastal. I chose not to. I chose Pittsburgh. Got lucky in finding the right team that ended up winning. But the sense was that, you know, and even Mac Brown told us that we're just not at the point as a program yet with the recruiting that we can lose six draft picks and it not hurt us. You're looking at three consecutive top 15 classes. You bring Gene Chizik back. You give coaches pay grades as well. And it looks like facilities-wise, the recruiting, everything seems to be humming in the right direction aside from where the expectations were last year and where things ultimately ended up. But you have a better sense of the pulse of Carolina fans than I do, given what you do day-to-day. What is the general feeling and expectation for Tar Heel football this year? Well, clearly they want it to go under the radar as best they can. Mac Brown definitely wants that. But in the times that we've been able to talk with Mac this summer, and we've had some, some pretty good sit-downs with him, there is a quiet confidence about Mac uh, that we did not see last year. And I, I think that really speaks to, to all the points you just mentioned. They finally have good depth. They finally have some of these you know, four- and five-star kids who are growing up. And so uh, offensively, there's a lot of question marks. There's quarterback. you got to figure out who's going to play running back. They've got to replace three starters at offensive line. A lot of those are legitimate questions. Uh, but Gene Chizik did a good job with the defense in the spring. they got a, got a lot of guys coming back. So they really do think this, this team can, uh, while last year's team underachieved, they think this year's team has a possibility of overachieving. Uh, what does that mean? You know, who knows? Maybe maybe this is a team that can win eight games and, and potentially challenge in the Coastal. But the coaching staff is being very clear with the players that you have not won anything yet. Uh, they know that going up to Boone that second week is, is a hard test. That's the reason they moved that Florida A&M game to week zero, solely because of that App State game. They wanted to make sure the guys were not playing their first game in Boone. And I think that's a smart decision. Uh, but they, there's a lot of optimism that this team can take a big step forward, but they know they have to prove it. I'm thinking about, I'm not going to give a pick yet because I haven't thought so much about it. Thinking about picking this Carolina team to win the Coastal. Am I crazy? No, I don't think you are. Uh, Miami's, you know, Miami looks good on paper. they got a good quarterback, mm-hmm. new coach, but they have to work through those coaching transition issues. Also, not, we talk to. about sample size. We only saw nine games from Tyler Van Dyke last year. He was great in them, but nine games. And there was no pressure on him, right? Because yeah. they had already lost so many games. That wasn't a big deal. Pittsburgh's the same way. I think Pittsburgh has a lot of good pieces. Uh, losing your best player clearly hurts. And then losing Jordan Addison the way that they did at USC. Uh, can you overcome that offensively, especially with a new offensive coordinator? So a lot of question marks, I think, in the Coastal. And North Carolina gets Pittsburgh at home, which I think helps. Uh, so things fall their way. And look, the schedule sets up perfect for them with four non-conference games to start the year. They did not have that luxury last year having to go up to Blacksburg to start things off. So uh, a lot of things are working in North Carolina's favor as we start the season. Greg Barnes, nobody does what you do better than you do it. And uh, I appreciate you spending the time here in the middle of the summer. And I uh, hope to see you in Charlotte next week.
right. Sounds good. Have a good weekend, Josh. Got it. That's Greg Barnes joining us from inside Carolina. Can't wait. The aggregators, they're going to say, Josh Graham is a hater, but not include the part where he's thinking about. It's going to be very confusing for Tar Heel fans that hate my guts right now, that if next week, if I decide to go on a whim and pick Carolina to win the Coastal, wait a minute. I think Josh is just trying to trick us. Or jinx us. That's, yeah, that, that's you it. You know what I mean? That's what I'm trying to do. You're trying to jinx us. Did I jinx Pittsburgh? One out of 150. Pit train. Choo-choo! Drove that. Let's get to some of these uh, tweets that I dug up here. As Lou Holtz once said, I could agree with you, but then we both be wrong. That's from Rob. I don't even know what this is in response to. What a ridiculous thing to say. This is in all caps. No way, shape, or form, Coach Davis's fault! Two exclamation points. Come on, Josh! I expected more from you. Sounds like a disappointed <laughs> father. So disappointed. I'm just, I'm not mad. <laughs> just, just disappointed. Josh, you and your poop mouth. Poop mouth. You better get that reference. I don't. Anchorman, come on. Oh, Just watch that. I made you watch that movie. That part of it. <laughs> this one's probably the best part. This guy who follows me said, this is Mama No Life. Oh. I don't know, Josh Graham. Is he supposed to be smart? Is he supposed to know stuff? Because he dumb. <laughs> That's pretty good. Put that on my gravestone. Yes, I'm framing that. Josh Graham. He dumb. Is he supposed to know stuff because he dumb? Yes. That's the title of today's podcast. Is he supposed to know stuff? <laughs> 